Cavs need a three. Sexton works on Irving, trying to get loose. He'll fire. Knocks it down. Ground. Here goes Okoro to the bucket. And oh, my. Okoro throws it down. Ten seconds to go. Here comes Colin Sexton. Sexton chased by Hill. Off to Stevens. Oh, my. 45 ticks to go. That shot is blocked by Nance. Get that big stuff out of here. Prince knocks down that Harden pass. Garland's there. Garland upstairs for Allen. Oh, look out. There you go. That's called team ball right there. All right. Welcome in to Locked on Knicks. I am Alex Wolf. I'm editor-in-chief of Knicks site, The Strickland, which you can find at thestrick.land. He is Gavin Shaw, resume play-by-play man, and of course, Knicks podcaster. And we have an awesome guest today, very timely guest that we worked quickly to, to get on the line with, uh, Evan Damerel of uh, Locked on Cavs and Fear the Sword, editor over there on that website. Evan, how are you doing, man? How's everything going in the last 24 hours or so with all these rumors? No, it's going pretty well, and contrary to what Twitter says, um, Cleveland's a pretty nice place to live compared to New York City. I think both are great, but just wanna just wanna plant my flag there and say it's a it's a great place to visit, despite wow. what Joakim Noah says too. Well, that's an admirable stance to take. So, <laughs> oh no, I was on the radio last night to talk about this Colin Sexton stuff, and that's they let in with that. Like, how do you feel about New York? And I'm like, you know, I've I got quite a few Knicks fans now following me, like in the last. 10 five or six hours or so so i don't want to completely dump on the city but i'm just like ah, cleveland's a gem i just think it's the butt of every sports joke so it, it's okay they'll be back someday that's a take that's a take evan all right um i i've never been to cleveland so i can't i can't retort in any fashion i'm sure it's great i'm sure it's great anywho uh let, let's get into this so the the rumor that uh you reported on we saw shams reported on a lot of different people is that the Knicks are potentially, and let me, let me know if I'm getting anything wrong here, reaching out to the Cavs um, for a Colin Sexton trade involving Obi Toppin, Kevin Knox, and one of the Knicks first round picks. So I, I guess the, the place I'd have to start off is where do you think the Cavs desire to trade Colin Sexton comes from? And obviously we've all heard the stuff about um, guys on other teams sort of teasing his teammates, like he won't pass you the ball. Um, and obviously this Cleveland rebuild is in sort of a fascinating place right now where they could theoretically like overload on guards if, if they were to go certain directions in the draft. Um, Kobe Altman, is, his position is kind of tenuous. There, there are a lot of balls in the air for Cleveland, a lot of different directions they could go with this rebuild. And yet Colin Sexton, at least on paper, is sort of a premium young talent and not one that a lot of teams in Cleveland situation would sort of be keen on sending out. Yeah, well, there's a lot to unpack here with Colin. So from the from the trade side of things, we can start there and then just kind of let this roll out because regular listeners are locked on Cavs and Cleveland fans in general think I don't like Colin Saxon, which is nothing further from the truth. I like Colin a lot, but there's a lot to unpack with him and we can do all that together today. There's a lot of good, there's some bad, but on the trade side of things, I think a lot of this stems from the fact that Colin Sexton is rookie max extension eligible. I think the number off the top of my head is 163.8 million over five years is what the maximum value Cleveland could pay him is. And that's tough to pay a player where there's a lot of unknown variables with. And especially when you're a team like Cleveland, where you are a couple years removed from this point of LeBron James leaving town a second time and Kyrie Irving burning every bridge on his way out as well. And Kevin Love just kind of being here, which as an aside, it's absolutely wild to think Kevin Love is the last man standing for that 2016 squad, especially in their heyday. He was in every trade rumor, but Colin and his camp, and I I agree with him and his agent's philosophy. He's represented by CAA, which is a great agency. Um, They approach the table in these negotiations saying, hey, you have more or less made my client the face of the franchise. You've called him the cultural leader. He has tangible evidence that shows he's improved and he's not the player that you thought he was out of, out of Alabama where coming out of Alabama, he wasn't viewed. He was viewed more in the vein of an Eric Bledsoe where he is a crazy wingspan. He's a defensive point guard who can maybe play, defend both ones and twos. And then he's not going to be a three point shooter. And it's like 
the inverse of that, where Colin Sexton, and we'll touch on this later, I'm sure, is not a very good defensive player. And he does have the God-given ability to play defense, but he has become an elite three-level scorer, and he's a great three-point shooter. And I think the most promising thing, in addition to his game, is other than you know the bump in playmaking at the end of the season this year, is the fact that he plays balls to the wall every single possession. And he is drawing contact consistently now and getting to the line, which is promising and since he's such a good shooter he's a reliable free throw shooter um so you approach the table and say all these things and then you also add the caveat the fact that cleveland's not a free agent destination they have to build through the draft or some smart trades or a cheap owner like tillman fertita not wanting jared allen and you kind of build smartly through that and build a small a respectable young core that's kind of lacking a star player but when you tried out this guy, and also as an aside too, Cleveland voted Colin Sexton Player of the Week every week for two years, it feels like. This year was a little different. Darius Garland and Jared Allen got a little love. But um, you have all these things, and you say, okay, well, my client wants top dollar. And I think that makes Cleveland uncomfortable. And I know a lot of folks say, like, well, why don't they just not pay him this summer and wait till he becomes a, becomes a restricted free agent? There's a problem in that, too. What if he signs an offer sheet and I use like the Brooklyn Nets with Tyler Johnson a few years ago as an example where Miami had to match it, but that's a volatile contract that nobody wants because in the grand scheme of the league, like I've talked to several teams at this point, over 20, I'd want to say actually. And at most Colin would make 22.5 million annually and that's over four years. And so do the math there. That's just a flat number or as low as 18 million or so. And Cleveland knowing that like a team could just sign him for way more than that. And then he doesn't become a desirable trade asset. So I think they're starting to explore the market a little bit and see what teams are interested. I know a lot of teams are, they're kind of monitoring the situation, but New York's really just become a prominent feature in this. And I know on the Sexton side of things, like their preferences to go to New York because of the CAA connection. And because when you're 22 years old and you're about to become a multimillionaire, why wouldn't you want to live in New York city? I mean, I would or Miami because he really looks up to Jimmy Butler and wants to play alongside him. Like those are the two contending forces. And at this point, New York's being aggressive. Um, I wonder how aggressive if they're willing to take on Kevin Love's contract. I think this trade really gets some legs to it, but I think the same goes for Miami. If they're willing to take on Kevin Love and if that gets them, if that's the price to get Colin Sexton, I think that balances things out. But New York's appeal is at least is, they could offer a few more things that are of interest. And I know Cavs fans are expecting like an RJ Barrett or let's say new Orleans enters the conversation. They say Brandon Ingram somehow becomes available. I've been the one saying for a while now that, Hey, let's pump the brakes a little bit and not say, Hey, we're going to go for one of the best young players on this team because this is our best young player. Um, the Cavs are negotiating from a position of disadvantage because it's now known at this point that Colin Sexton's on the trade market and teams can lowball the hell out of him because you have to find a team that wants to extend Colin. And I don't think there's going to be many of those if he's asking for that kind of money. But if you send him to like a New York or a Miami with New York being a playoff team, Miami just being removed from the NBA finals last season, the numbers are a little different. The metrics and the calculus is a little different too. But just to jump back, I think I said a few days before the Shams report dropped, I think it was Sunday. Yeah, I saw. <laughs> it's funny. So I said, I dropped the tweet, put my phone on Do Not Disturb because I went to go see Black Widow, which perfectly okay movie. Fun to see a Marvel movie in theaters again. But I like it, I saw it blew up a little bit. But yeah, New York and Miami are interested. And I think New York being the most aggressive suitor isn't surprising at this point. A lot of it is that CAA connection. But I I really like Collins' fit on this Knicks team. And we can talk about that in a bit. But that's just kind of where everything's at. I think it's more exploratory stuff. But I think there is some fire to this smoke. And we're going to really start seeing it get a little crazy closer to the draft, which is about two weeks away at this point. So it's only going to get louder. Yeah. I, so, you know, you said it before we kind of started really going there that, that there's a lot to unpack. And I agree. There is, I think a lot to unpack with Sexton. Um, I mean, on the surface, if you're just looking at like his basketball reference page, you're like, why is this kid even available? Like 24 points, the shooting slashes are honestly, I mean, I won't go so far as to say elite, but I mean, he's put up really good uh, shooting slash lines uh, for all three years in the league, to be honest, uh, this year shot 47 and a half percent. Overall, 37.1% on 4.4 three-point attempts per game. Uh, shot 81.5% from the free throw line on 6.5 attempts per game. He's had upticks every single year in 
field goals attempted, field goals made, uh, three-pointers attempted, three-pointers made, and free throws attempted, free throws made. So, you know, showing growth as far as being able to get his shots every single year. And again, it resulted in 24 points. Now, you could you could argue he might he might actually maybe regress a little bit on the Knicks as far as shot attempts go yeah. if he would get traded here because, you know, he's not going to be required to be the most of the offense like he was in Cleveland, um, or at least not as high of a portion of it with, you know, Julius Randle obviously soaking up the usage that he does as sort of the alpha dog here. Uh, RJ Barrett, you know, taking up his share of shots. Um, uh, granted, of course, he could fit very cleanly into the Alfred Payton sized hole of shots there uh, and, you know, take those, but there's, there's like a lot as far as his value. That's, that's interesting to me. And I, I guess we'll, I'll get into that first and then maybe we can get into some of the stats and, and his fit. And then, you know, we can talk about some of the Knicks pieces that you had, you had mentioned as well, uh, you know, for the Cavs, but like, as far as the contract stuff, I, you know, I got into some, some conversations on Twitter about it yesterday, you know, after I saw what you had said about the, you know, what you've seen the the rumored offer to be, which again, as Gavin said, is Obi Toppin, Kevin Knox, and one of their two first round picks this year. So whether that's 19 or 21, um, I'm sure most people would prefer 21 because 19 greater than 21, but ultimately not a huge difference one way or the other, if it's one of those two picks. Um, But like the, as far as that package goes, that, that's pretty, I mean, some people are trying to come for my neck being like, I called it a middling trade package, but it is, I mean, for someone who's put up that level of production, I think that is kind of a, a low trade package for a player that's on his rookie contract that has shown improvement every single year. Um, you know, to be able to just send off those three pieces, like here's the, the, the basic, you know, Cliff's notes versions of each of those players, Kevin Knox, three years in, still doesn't necessarily have an NBA skill other than maybe shooting wide open corner three pointers. I mean, it's, you know, I, I think there's still a chance for him, but he needs to figure out a lot as far as his understanding of the game to be able to, to become a better player. Are we topping? I mean, everybody's pointing out, yeah, he showed so much improvement towards the end of the year and he did, but he was supposedly the most uh, one of, if not the most NBA ready prospect in the draft last year as a 23 year old in the draft, you know, you're expecting him to come in and have like a John Collins type impact. And instead, I mean, I think that he had the sort of learning curve that you would normally see out of like a 19 year old, um, which you can, you can chalk up to, he didn't have, he was effectively like, if you want to just count his major college program years, he was more like a sophomore than a senior, but because he played junior college and all this other stuff. So, you know, maybe he's, he had more of a learning curve than your average older draft pick, but he spent about 75% of the year being unplayable. And on this team, he's going to have a really hard time getting playing time behind Julius Randle anyway. So it's kind of like you're trading maybe someone who could potentially turn into a, a good role player for someone who's already a fantastic scorer, if nothing else. Like, could, if nothing else, be a awesome sixth man microwave, you know. 30 minute per game guy off your bench in Colin Sexton. Um, and then the first round pick, obviously, which, you know, it's a mystery box, you know, it could be mm-hmm. someone great. could be, so, it could be the boat or it could be the, you know, the sack of crap. Um, <laughs> there's, there's no way to know because the draft is, is a crap shoot. So I, you know, I was trying to explain to people like you, you make that trade and you're not giving up a ton as far as assets are concerned, at least for a player of that caliber. Like, you're not even scratching the surface of what you'd have to give up for some of the bigger names out there, like, like a Damian Lillard or something, but you're getting a guy that you could take a flyer on, put into an environment with Tibbs, with Johnny Bryant, you know, and, and give him a chance to shine in that environment. And on top of it, you get that restricted free agent matching rights, which I don't Maybe it's, it's been a while since the Knicks have actually been in this position. I guess we'll see how it goes uh, this summer with Frank Nilakino. Like, the Knicks haven't really seen a guy through on his rookie contract in a long time. Um, so it's, it's tough to even really say like what they'll do in this scenario. Probably the last big one that we had that would be similar to the scenario that would present itself next year with Sexton would be the Jeremy Lin scenario where the Knicks essentially said, go out and set your market. What, and, you know, if we are uh, like okay with it and on board with, with whatever offer you get, we'll match it. 
And famously, you know, Houston offered that poison pill contract, which would have like royally screwed the Knicks cap sheet up. And that's why they let Lynn walk, but they essentially get the power. Then, you know, instead of having to be the team that goes out and does like what they did with Tim Hardaway Jr. And offer up the big contract that the team doesn't want to match, you know, and, you know, have to, if Sexton really is a guy that they're interested in, they now get that right of first refusal of, okay, go I mean, if you think you're worth the max contract, go out there and find a max contract. But if you don't, here's an offer from us that, you know, we'll have more years or whatever, or you can get another offer from somewhere else. If you, if you can get someone to agree to pay you like $24 million or whatever, like we'll match it, but you need to find the offer first. And that's the beauty of getting someone's restricted free agent rights. So, I mean, what do you think in that regard? Like, I I think that's being underrated in this whole situation of where people are saying like, well, you know, unless you're prepared to give them a max, you know, why are you making this deal? Someone, it's not on the Knicks to offer him a max contract at that point. They can literally say, go find a max contract or else we're not giving you a max. And I I can't think of a single team in the NBA that's going to give him a max unless he like, shows huge improvement on the defensive end and becomes like a a bona fide like starting point guard rather than like a, a small combo guard. Today's episode is brought to you by Bet Online, the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Baseball season is in full swing and you can track all the action at Bet Online. Get all the latest news, odds and info for your sporting needs including MLB, NBA, NHL and all of your UFC slash MMA action. Before the next pitch, head over to Bet Online on your laptop or mobile device and check out the, all the great sporting news, sign-up bonuses, and contest information. Do not sit on the sidelines anymore, as this is your chance to get into the game as teams prep for the runs to the playoffs. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. That's promo code Locked On, and remember, it's Bet Online, your online sports book experts. Oh wow, that's pretty interesting. I, I was I was an MPJ guy for the Knicks, but it seems like in retrospect that was never going to happen. Anyways, Evan, I guess I, I I think I think you raise a great point, and, and Alex too, because where, where this sort of leaves us is like you kind of uh, weirdly like for the Knicks, like coming off this great season, like all the vibe should be great, you should feel amazing, but when you go from being like some form with the exception of one or two years of really bad for two decades. And then all of a sudden you've actually sort of done the right things on the path to rebuilding. It's this painful thing in the NBA that teams realizes like, Oh, now is actually where, where things get hard because it's all, it's all kind of obvious and easy when it's like, all right, just, just keep accumulating high picks, keep accumulating assets. Everyone kind of pats you on the back as you keep building those things up and saying, Oh wow, they're doing a good job. Oh wow. Smart rebuild. They, they traded um, well in retrospect, Kristaps Porzingis, who, who wasn't going to be of much use to them. And on a contract that in retrospect, you wouldn't have really wanted to sign for a couple first round picks and it's all well and good. And then you kind of get to this point, if you're the Knicks and all of a sudden like reality smacks you in the face and it's like, you have to make a decision is someone like Colin Sexton. If he's the third best player on your team, is that a team that's competing for an NBA championship? And by everything we know right now, you would kind of say a resounding like, ah, probably not. Maybe if the top two players are like Kevin Durant and Steph Curry, then yeah, he could be the third best player. But with what the Knicks currently have, you would say, almost definitely not. And then the idea of locking in that team where it's like Julius Randle, RJ Barrett, Colin Sexton, Emmanuel quickly as your core going forward, or Mitchell Robinson in there too. That feels like a 50 win team that tops out in the second round. Most years, maybe has like a Portland like trajectory and sneaks into the conference finals one season. So if you're the Knicks, you like on the surface, you're like, all right, hell no. I don't, I, I we have higher aspirations than that. We don't really want to commit to the, just that. But then you, you keep spinning it forward and you're saying, all right, what's the better move here? Is there a better move out there? And if you can get someone like Colin Sexton, who is putting up these ridiculous numbers as a 22-year-old, don't you kind of have to like take that swing and and decide if he could be that guy? Um, so I guess, Evan, I know you've, you've answered a version of this already, but uh, that's sort of my question. Is there a world where Colin Sexton's ceiling involves maybe taking a leap and being the second guy in a title team? Because the issue with the Knicks right now is RJ Barrett is promising. Emmanuel quickly is promising. Julius Randle was really good. But right now it, it's, it's pretty clear. I would say that the quote unquote alpha dog of a championship team does not exist on the Knicks. 
I think they're trying to figure out if they have the second, third, and fourth guys in place. And I, I want to know where you think Colin Sexton, best case scenario, would slot into that hierarchy. We'll be right back with more of this great conversation with Lockton Knicks, but want to tell you about our friends at Built Bar who are celebrating the freedom of choice. Do you know that Built Bar has so many delicious flavors? There's something for everyone. So when you talk to a Built Bar fan, they're going to be passionate about their favorites, including Cherry barcia, Mint Brownie, Double Chocolate, and many, many more. My favorite right now might be Cookies and Cream. It's just a staple of my Built Bar rotation. And remember, not only are Built Bars the best tasting bars, but they're healthy too. 17 18 grams of protein, calories ranging from 130 to 180, and only 4 to 5 grams of sugar with 4 to 5 net carbs. You can also try a mixed box where you get two of each of the nine flavors if you want to tr- haven't tried one or want to try them all. And to order today, we get the raspberry, the mint brownie, the salted caramel, or whatever it is you like. And Built Bar is the official protein bar of the U.S. track and field team. Isn't that neat? Go to Built.com and use promo LOCKED15 and you'll get 15% off your next order. Again, promo code LOCKED15 for 15% off at BuiltBar.com. Yeah, it's complicated because when the Cavs traded for Jared Allen, Kobe Altman made a point to share with the media that it's better to have him in-house because of that restricted free agency bonus. And I think Cleveland is just a team that is also anxious because, like I said, they aren't a free agent destination. And there is a fear that maybe they get priced out of what they're comfortable paying Colin and they're also a reactionary franchise too. Um, you look at the Kevin Love extension, a, a lot of that came from LeBron leaving for the Lakers and they slapped a hefty price tag to an oft injured forward who is now on the wrong side of 30 and is pretty much one of the worst contracts in the league at this point. I mean, Chris Paul and Russell Westbrook have had a little nice resurgences, but waiting for Kevin Love to have his chance. But um, at this point, yeah, I think if the Cavs were going to take that gamble, it might be a little bit riskier. But I think the luxury of the Knicks being a pretty more stable organization, and like you said, you can plug him into a role. And my buddy Ty Windish pointed this out to me, and I think it's a really smart analysis where if, let's say, theoretically, Colin Sexton were to join the Knicks, he would be a very nice option off the bench for them where he could play the same role Derrick Rose did in the playoffs where he – where Rose is the most dominant player at times and probably the best player for the Knicks at times in their series against Atlanta, but because Julius Randle was nullified and you look at that and you say, okay, well, Rose has a lot of mileage on his body. He is pretty often injured. It's nice to see him have that little resurgence that he did with the Knicks. And after he floated around the league, after funnily enough, leaving Cleveland, um, you put Colin Sexton in that role who isn't injured much at all like his rookie season he played all 82 games he played all 65 of the shortened season this year he missed 12 this year because of just some nagging stuff but it was nothing too too concerning I think it was an ankle sprain that just kept them out for a while off the top of my head but you put that in you you could be cooking there because the Knicks could kind of bludgeon teams to death with Sexton coming off the bench and being a spark plug and like you said, I think the Knicks would have that luxury to let him say, okay, go out there and find a max contract. If you don't, we'll have an offer sheet waiting for you. And I just don't know if Cleveland has that option because they could, they're such a reactionary franchise that they could be scared that they could lose this asset for nothing. If they find an offer that they can't match. And the same could be said for Jared Allen too. Like Jared Allen could sign a lucrative offer sheet with Charlotte or Toronto, or I know San Antonio is interested in him as well, and they could lose him for nothing. And I guess that's just the reality of today's NBA too, is you just face these risks and pitfalls. But I think just New York has the added ammunition. The fact that we're already a playoff team, um, we're the Knicks. I know like people like to use them as a butt of a joke every now and then, but there's some legitimacy to playing in New York City and playing at Madison Square Garden. It's a very well-respected thing, and I know like Dolan's kind of tarnished the brand a little bit, but I think the Knicks having a stable year this year and being one of the fun stories in the league and Tom Thibodeau just coaching the hell out of this team has really brought, put them back on the upswing and made them an appealing destination again, but We'll kind of see how that unfolds. So if you put Colin in that New York situation, I think it's a lot easier for him, for the Knicks to kind of play that gamble. But then you have Cleveland who 
still seems like they have no direction at this point. They drafted Darius Garland the year after the draft Sexton. Uh, Isaac Okoro is a step in the right direction, and Isaac Okoro still has some lumps and deficiencies that he needs to grow from and just kind of improve upon. And then they have the third pick this year, which could be a game changer for them. But the Cavs have a long way to go. They're nowhere close to where New York is. And I know there's the fans and some folks in the organization can want to say like, oh, we want to have a resurgence like the Knicks or like Phoenix or like Atlanta. There's a lot of things the Cavs have to do to get to that point. And I think because of that uncertainty, you can really, really shoot your shot if you're calling Sexton's agent and say like, okay, my client's are going to be the best young player on this roster. And even though he doesn't really raise the ceiling of this organization, he also doesn't make them bottom out either. Like, like you said, Colin Sexton would take a lot less shots in New York. And I, uh, I, I draw the flack of a lot of listeners and Cavs fans. And I say he puts up a lot of empty calories sometimes, or it seems like he's a volume scorer, which I think he is. He took 18 shots a game last year and he shot 47.5% from the floor. So there's a little bit of validity to that. So yes, the counting stats would go down a lot and not a lot, but they go down a bit in New York. But I think since he's so efficient, he would make the most of his attempts. And I think if he changed his shot profile, if he went to New York and took more threes than he does now, because he is a good three-point shooter. Um, he's been on the downswing a little bit since his rookie season, reshot 40% from the floor. But I just, I really like the fit for him with New York. Um, if everything was on the table and there were so many teams that were interested, whether it's the Lakers or the Pacers or anybody else, I, I'd say the Heat's the best fit for him because Jimmy Butler's a playmaking wing, and that's such a rare commodity in this league today. Um, but you could pair a bucket getter like Sexton where you don't have to worry much about the playmaking on his part. And yeah, I, at the end of the season, there was an uptick in playmaking. Some of it does come from the fact that Colin reads every bit of media about him. Um, I had his family reach out because I wrote an article about how it says like, hey, this was his sophomore season. He was having a rough slump to start things. And then like, he just couldn't hit a three to save his life. And I said like, yeah, statistically speaking though, like it should balance back out. And like, I just gave hard data and his family reached out and said like, yeah, Colin really appreciate that. He reads everything about him and uses like his haters as motivation. It's, it's a cliche, but it makes sense. But someone from the athletic dropped a piece saying that like, whenever he's on the floor, opposing teammates will, or opposing players will say, he's not going to pass the ball to you. And some of the veterans in Cleveland's locker room and some of the other players in Cleveland's locker room and the young core were frustrated with him and the fact that when Collins on the floor, he was incredibly ball dominant. And when Darius Garland is out, you saw a huge uptick in playmaking from Colin. Um, I think that's encouraging for sure. I think that's a good thing if he can keep that up. But I want to make sure it's sustainable too because his rookie season, he didn't pass double-digit assist until the 82nd game of the year. And so... That's not, and that's when he hit 10 assists. And then for a while, like he would have high assist games where like he had that massive outburst where he ruined the Brooklyn Nets big three debut. And then the following night where he had 42 points and the following night he had 21 points and 11 assists because he was the primary focus of Brooklyn's defense. And he looked to move the rock instead. I need more of that until I can comfortably say, yeah, this kid's going to be a playmaker. And like, this is the next leap. And defensively, maybe it's a coaching thing. Maybe it's a system thing. Um, the Cavs play a lot of drop coverage. And I just think it's also Colin being exposed as a 6-1 guard and being forced to defend some two guards on a night-to-night -night basis. Like, he's drawn the task of defending James Harden. He's drawn the task of defending LeBron James in certain switches. He's drawn the task of defending so many talented two guards in this league and it's just like it, it's unfair for him and like it's an untenable position i think his defensive metrics have been kind of obliterated because of that i think he should be playing the point just because of how small he is i think in an ideal scenario you look to put him next to a bigger body defensive player whether it's a wing or just a two guard in general to kind of cover up some of the deficiencies and such that's why i think also jimmy butler is a better fit for him but that's just kind of where I'm at. I think if you put him in the FIB system, though, and I think Thibodeau could really, if he can tap into that God-given ability, because I think he has a seven-foot wingspan. And coming out of Alabama, like I said, he drew comparisons to Eric Bledsoe because he was a good defender, and Avery Johnson was coaching the hell out of him defensively. Like, there's something there. It just got lost along the way, but I don't think it's so lost that it can never be found again. <laughs> it's fair. Oh, I wasn't either. I wanted Shea Gilgis Alexander so badly for the Cavs. And apparently, days leading up to the draft, Shea Gilgis Alexander told Cleveland not to draft him. And it just all fell apart from there.
Yeah. All right, Evan, this is the final question on my end, but in terms of the timeline of this trade, how much do you think how the draft actually factors out is relevant? Because to me, and maybe I'm completely off on this and the Sexton thing is really its its own variable, but I, I would assume it's contingent on the Cavs ending up with Jalen Green, right? Because if, yeah, I mean, if, if they get Evan Mobley, are they still set on trading away Colin Sexton? Because then all of a sudden you are kind of stuck looking for that second creator again um, next to Darius Garland. And obviously no so, one uh, that they get back to the Knicks unless they really hit that in, first but I just want to say before we'll necessarily we move on fill that from that, so uh, would you say this is something that, that could only happen about his family draft, reaching out or, or do you think that's, this is that's noted. Thank you things. for the warning. So I'll make sure if the Knicks trade for him not to share my story once again about how I cheered louder for the Cavs taking Sexton on draft night than the Knicks taking Knox because I felt that the Cavs had just saved the Knicks from themselves that night because <laughs> the, the Knicks were linked to Sexton. I was not a Sexton fan <laughs> coming into the draft. So, yeah. Yeah. See, that's a tough question. I don't know if you want to really say he's the alpha dog because that's the mystery box when it comes to Colin Sexton. And like we talk about draft picks being, oh, a boat's a boat, but a mystery box could be anything at this point. Um, I, I really can't say because if you want to look at Cleveland over the last three years with Colin Sexton, it's been a pretty flat line for them where they've been consistently picking in the top of the draft. Um, this year is a little bit of an exception. They did flirt with trying to make the plan for a little bit, but once that was out of reach, they kind of um, pulled back a little bit and work things out that way. And then just everything kind of fell in their favor. Um, I think it just depends on, what he looks like in a winning situation for me to really properly evaluate that because for Cavs fans, at least, and some folks who cover this team closely, they use comparisons like Donovan Mitchell, where they're at the same point relatively in their careers where like Collins putting up similar numbers to Don or Devin Booker in terms of shooting. Like that's a really outlandish one I've heard. And I kind of roll my eyes at that where I say, those are unfair comparisons. It's like when Darius Garland was drawing comparisons to Steph Curry. I think they're kind of lazy at times too. And I know people try to use cherry pick stats to back that up. Um, I think you need to put Colin Sexton on a winning team to really have an idea of what kind of player he's going to be. And then you say, okay, can he be the alpha dog or can he be the second fiddle to a, a true alpha or star? Or will he be a complimentary piece that really just provides a scoring punch? I'll like a Jordan Clarkson does for the Utah jazz. Um, that's, that's the unknown with him is what kind of player is he? And I think we're starting to get a better idea with his limitations still being present from his rookie season to now and you know some of the deficiencies being ironed out and kind of some of the wrinkles in his game being figured out like that's helpful but there's still a little bit to go and i think i need to see him in a winning situation and because cleveland is not really going anywhere fast they may try to make some rush moves to try and make themselves more of a winning team um, I mean, yeah, if you want to look at like advanced metrics, Colin has had an impact on winning for the Cavs. Like he was a key factor in a lot of Cleveland's wins, but at the same time, like he hasn't had like this massive leap to say like, okay, this guy's going to be the alpha. This guy's going to be either our first or second best player. I think he's going to be a very good complimentary player. And historically for the eighth pick, that's not a bad thing. Like I think Channing Fry is another notable eighth overall pick. And um, at this point you, you get the most you can get, but I think, that's the other thing with fandom is play fans will overvaluate or overvalue a lot of their players. And that's where a lot of the uh, confusion can breakdowns can happen too. So it, you already sort of touched on these things a little bit. I want to throw a couple stats out there though, and just get some additional perspective, particularly on the defensive end. Um, for one, you mentioned the playmaking, you know, that he's had some flashes where it seems like maybe he's turning a corner, but they're, they're just that they're flashes. Um, but he did see a 10% uptick in his assist percentage this year from what was quite frankly, a, a pretty abysmal number of like the, the low teens uh, for a, someone who nominally coming out of college was considered a point guard uh, to now up to, I think it was like 22 and a half percent this year. I didn't write down the number. I just wrote down that it was a plus 10%. I know it was, it was like roughly in that range, um, which is, I mean, I think for a true point guard, quote unquote, you would want like, 30 plus percent assist percentage, but still certainly better than 12%. Um, and maybe it goes a little bit towards dispelling 
the, his reputation as a ball hog and, and maybe showing some growth. Uh, now that, you know, you could say too, that the, the Cavs added some more talent this past year. So maybe he finally just started trusting his teammates more rather than feeling like he had to do everything. Um, the other thing is his defense. And that's the one that really, that really perplexes me because you noted like when he was coming out of college, he was supposed to be this like defensive stalwart, you know, and there was the, the famous uh, little clip from summer league that came out the, his first year where, you know, it's, it's freaking summer league and he's out there like slapping the floor and like daring whoever it was to try to get by him or whatever. Like I forget who they were even playing. I just remember Colin Sexton, like slapping the floor with a guy dribbling the ball in front of him with like, a crazed look in his eyes, which is the other thing. Colin Sexton scares me a little bit. He, he constantly looks like he's on the verge of like murdering somebody. Um, but, the, you know, it, it seemed like he was going to be almost like, I don't know, like Patrick Beverly or something. Like, I think that's yeah. what some people thought he was going to be out of college. Like just this like kind of like, scrappy, smaller his, his, defensive his guard. baseline comp was Patrick Beverly with like his absolute ceiling being Eric Bledsoe before, Eric Bledsoe kind of became a not valuable commodity in the league. Yeah. So like, so as far as a couple numbers for, you know, defense form, he has a minus 2.9 defensive Raptor. That's a stat from 538. Uh, I I didn't see exactly where he ranks, but it's certainly in the lower part of the scatter plot. (laughs) Uh, Not one of the better rankings in the league, but then you look at overall net rating numbers and, he's at a minus 0.7 per cleaning the glass, which uh, on a team that quite frankly was as bad as Cleveland was this year is really not that bad. I mean, if you can come in at roughly a a net negative or sorry, a net, a net neutral, I should say, or a minor negative, that's not the worst on a bad team because you figure, you know, what goes into that is he's part of the starting lineup, soaking up major minutes, which means he's facing the other team's best players. Um, you know, and that means that y- your net rating is going to potentially suffer some because, you know, the starting unit is going to get more cooked than the bench unit will against some of those teams that don't have as uh, robust of bench units behind their really good starting units. So all that is to say, I'm just kind of confused by him on defense. You know, I there's a part of me that thinks, OK, yeah, this this guy might actually be really good on defense. And surprisingly, like we've we've talked about this a number of times on the show, like Tibbs, I don't think, really prioritizes defense first with his point guards, even though you would think that that would be like priority number one for him is like Mr. Defensive Coach that, you know, has been touted for that for so many years. But mostly he likes out of his backcourt guys creation. He likes creation, creation, creation. Like, can you get inside? Can you, um, you know, generate some some offense for the team that way and, you know, maybe kick out the shooters or be credible to, you know, get inside and draw foul or whatever. He stuck with Alfred Payton for forever this year, just because of, I think the fact that he could get into the paint, even though he never knew what to do once he actually got there. Sexton, I think seems a little more capable as far as that's concerned, as far as drawing fouls, finishing, uh, hopefully kicking out all that stuff. But then on the defensive end, I think that's just sort of like a bonus skill uh, for Tibbs. You know, if the, if the point guard can, do all those things plus play defense, then great. But it's not like his priority that the point guard be able to play great defense. Um, I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are, you know, now having watched Sexton for three years on D has he shown any improvement in that respect? Like, do you think that he's getting better? Um, do you think that he just needs a good scheme maybe? Cause I know that there's been, you know, a, Knicks fans are very familiar with this whole thing of, you know, lots of turnover and roster turnover, you know, uh, coach turnover, all that stuff in Cleveland, like there are with a lot of, you know, more rebuilding franchises. So do you think he's been kind of tossed around because of that and and just doesn't have like a good infrastructure? Like, what do you think the diagnosis is of why he's been so bad on defense after coming into the league with a defensive reputation? That that's it's tough to unpack because, like I said, he came into the league as a point guard, but Cleveland drafted Darius Garland with the belief that they could play both of them together and slip Colin over to the two guard. Yeah, actually, and, to be clear, too, I think he's more of a combo guard long term as well. So, I, I don't necessarily so do I. know if I count if I want to count on him as my point guard, but anyway, yeah, sorry. No, no, you're fine. I think he does have a little bit of that CJ McCollum combo guard role in him. 
uh, not the player CJ is because CJ is just more refined offensively in my opinion, but has a lot of those same defensive pitfalls. I think some of it is scheme. Some of it's coaching. I think if you get him in a situation where he isn't being cooked alive on the perimeter and, you know, having Jared Allen as a little bit of a back support back guard support helps too. But, um, I think it's going to be scheme. It's going to be coaching. And like you said, uh, Knicks and Thibodeau are looking for creation from their guards. I think that's certainly what Colin can provide in terms of shot creation and his refining his profile a little bit and just using his aggressiveness to kind of get looks from the guard position. But I think he's better suited as a one. And if you pair him along, if you put him in traditional role, but also basketball's positional at this point, so who cares? But, and you put like a bigger body, more competent defensive wing player next to him. It covers up some of his deficiencies. Like an example I always use is when you had Avery Bradley covering up all of his Isaiah Thomas's problems in Boston, you have something similar to that. I think that's doable. I don't think you get MVP numbers from Colin like you did with Isaiah, but I think that's a system that can work and it can have its limitations but it's a certain look and a certain wrinkle you can have in your offense and defensive scheme but colin isn't also like an abject failure defensively he still tries his hardest it's just he has limitations because he's being forced to defend two guards on a night-to-night basis because well let's just put it this way isaac okoro usually draws the defensive assignment of the best wing or guard player for the opponent that night whether it's lebron james and then like brooklyn provides a lot of issues as well but Darius Garland is a lot worse defensively than Colin. So Colin usually has to guard like the second best perimeter player or guard or wing player. And then Darius is kind of hidden alongside Kevin Love. And then Jared Allen has to protect the paint and isn't much of a switch defender. So there's some limitations there. So it's a scheme thing. And I think it's just a personnel thing as well. That's just kind of cooked Colin's numbers alive. And I also just think that's part of playing on a bad team, a bad young and inexperienced team too. It's just, you can't take, you can take stock in his defensive metrics, but you really can't hold his feet to the flames entirely for it. Um, But three seasons in, there are some concerns with his defensive limitations, but I am curious to see if you put him in a different situation, how different he would look. I think they kind of go hand in hand and they are completely separate. I think the fear of having to pay Colin is really pushing the priority of Cleveland, maybe moving on from him now instead of later. But if they get Jalen green, the decision's a lot easier. I know Jalen green, certainly raw, but he is a big body shot creator. That is a lot of things that Kevin Porter jr. Was um, for Cleveland. I think if KPJ was still here, the Cavs wouldn't be nearly as hesitant to trade Colin at times either, because you're right. Like you're losing some scoring. You're losing a lot of shot creation from Colin there. And that's hard to replicate and reproduce. But I think a lot of it hinges as well as like, let's say Sharif Cooper is available. And I know he's listed at six one, but he's measured at six four at the combine. Like I know the Cavs are big fans of his as well. And they want to try and address the backup point guard issue as well. And maybe they, if they get Jalen green at three, I think, yeah, it really opens doors for him. But if it's even if it's Devin Mobley at three, I think the Cavs are still going to explore this because they have to do their due diligence. And if you held a gun to my head right now and said, okay, what are the chances Colin Sexton's traded? I think after yesterday's reporting and just some sniffing I've done, like it's a 45% chance and 55% chance he's still here after the draft and is either signing an extension or he's playing out the remainder of his rookie contract here in Cleveland next year. But it's always fluid. It's always fluid in the NBA. Things are constantly moving and changing and shifting. So anything could change between now and draft night and some crazy stuff could happen too. Like you never know, maybe Cleveland swings for, uh, wing player that they can put alongside Darius Garland and they say, all right, Colin, it's been fun. And then they move on from him. So I don't know. There's a lot of stuff here, but I think there is some smoke to this Knicks thing. And I think more of it's coming from Collins camp than anything. And I do think there is a mutual interest with, with all parties involved if this were to happen. And it would be a shame to see him go, but I'd rather see Colin thrive in a situation and for the Cavs to not have to worry about or wring their hands over paying him. So before we start wrapping things up, I know this is probably going to be sort of a crossover episode, despite the fact that this <laughs> kind of went more the Knicks direction and the, and us learning about Colin Sexton. But um, is there anything from your perspective about this deal that you're curious about, like as far as Obi Toppin, Kevin Knox, et cetera, uh, as far as all that's concerned? Well, I did notice one thing. Um, 
I think this is a good theoretical trade because there were Knicks fans that were upset that Obi Toppin might be the piece that's given up for Colin Sexton. And then there are Cavs fans that are upset that Colin Sexton was the piece being given up for Obi Toppin. But I have to ask you guys, because he had a nice little surge towards the end of the season, especially in the playoffs. Um, I know Thibodeau is hesitant, hesitant to play rookies. And I think a lot of that played into him not playing much for New York and also, you know, Julius Randle just being incredible played a huge part of that too. Um, do you think that's really sustainable for him? Because when I look at Obi, I think if you put him in a situation, like I know fans right now are saying it makes no sense. You have Kevin Love on the roster. You have Jared Allen on the roster. You have Larry Nance Jr. on the roster. That's almost 40 million committed already to your front court rotation. Why would you bring Obi Toppin into the mix? I'm firmly in the mindset that either Kevin Love's going to be traded or he's going to be bought out because I think his time with Team USA is not going to have a much impact on his stock in the league. I think it's already low enough to begin with, and Cleveland's going to have a hard time trading for him. So if you buy out Kevin Love in theory and you bring in Evan Mobley, and let's say next year your front court rotation is Mobley at the four, Allen at the five, and then you have Nance at the four, top and the five and you mix and match those two and you can tinker with all that too. I think that's a pretty solid rotation. And I think people are down on him because if you look at Obi's stats, he hardly played because of his situation in New York with Randall and Thibodeau being hesitant to play rookies. Like correct me if I'm wrong here, but like he has the potential to be a very solid rotational forward. And I think the stretchiness is an intriguing thing. Like the fact that he can hit it from beyond the arc and like, yeah, there are concerns with like his hips and his defensive ability, but at the end of the day, I don't think this is a bad pickup for Cleveland, and I, I can understand why Knicks fans might be a little bit upset to see him go. So what's funny about <laughs> about the overall OB like, experience this year is it's very similar to what you said about what the Sexton experience was like for Cleveland initially in the sense that I think that we came in with a certain expectation about what OB was going to bring. And then it wound up being almost the complete opposite once we saw him in practice. So it, like what you, a lot of what you just said there, like to me was like the, the scouting report prior to the draft, you know what I mean? Like defensively, he's going to get roasted and offensively he can finish on the inside. He can shoot a little bit. Like he's going to be like an offensive dynamo, whatever. And that all, that seemed like that was what it was going to be. I mean, he had his first, a uh, couple preseason games and we were all like, oh man, like, yeah, he, he's definitely struggling from like a strength perspective on the inside, but he can finish on the inside. He can pass a little bit. Like there's a lot of things to like here as the season went on. You know, I mentioned this earlier, but he, he weirdly had, you know, we thought that uh, Gavin and I weren't super high on the pick last year when they took him, we were like, Ugh, all right. I mean, it, we started talking ourselves into it immediately as everybody does, but we were like, uh, you know, everybody that we had talked to said he's just going to get roasted constantly on defense. He'll probably be splashy and fun to watch because of the dunks and everything and, you know, playing in a pick and roll situation and whatever. But by and large, you know, he's probably going to be a negative player uh, for like his whole career. And so we came in kind of expecting that. What ended up happening was he was actually really uncomfortable on offense uh, where we thought that he was going to really take off and, Maybe part of that is a limited playing time, but, it, you know, despite Tibbs's rep of being a guy that doesn't trust rookies and doesn't, you know, let them kind of cook and, and do their thing, he maybe it was a front office directive. Maybe it was just him turning over a new leaf. But I mean, through hell or high water, he pretty much gave Obi like 10 minutes per game, no matter what. Um, which most nights was about all you could afford because he refused to play Randall and Obi together. So, you know, it was, it was basically whatever minutes that Randall wasn't playing, Obi would play. And he stuck with them even when, I mean, there were stretches around like a month into the season where Obi was like basically unplayable, which sounds mean, but it's the truth. Um, I mean, he just, he couldn't hit a shot. They pretty much had him exclusively playing on the perimeter. Like he was almost just like, like for <laughs> to make an old Knicks reference, he was almost like Steve Novak, but like not hitting the shots. Like they didn't have him really cutting to the hoop at all or doing the things that are sort of were his bread and butter, like in college, as far as finishing around the rim and, you know, trying to utilize that part of his skill set. He was pretty much just being, you know, reduced to just a perimeter score, which was kind of weird. Um, but 
you know, towards the end of the year, he started to figure that out a little more. I, I don't, I think he's going to have to rework his shot a little bit. He has sort of a similar shot to Kevin Knox and um, some other guys where he shoots a rainbow. Like it's like, takes like 10 minutes to hit the hoop from the time it leaves his hand. And those sort of shots, like it, it's very hit. It, I mean, all shots are hit or miss, but those are especially hit or miss. Like you have to shoot that shot a hundred percent perfectly. Like Steph Curry, you know, if you're going to shoot those moonshot shots like that, and he just doesn't have that consistency yet. So there would be some games where he hit, you know, two or three threes. And then other games where he'd go like over four and they, you know, he'd airball one and hit one off the side of the backboard. Um, because if, if that shot's not perfect, then it's not going in. Um, the other thing is they've rarely used him in pick and roll. So there might still be un- untapped potential there. Uh, for him as a, I mean, two of his best things coming out of college were pick and roll finishing and uh, passing out of the short roll. And Mm -hmm. he didn't really get too many opportunities to do that this year. So, you know, there might be some latent upside there. As far as on defense, though, that was the biggest surprise. I mean, he really gives a crap on defense. Um, And that might have been something that was coached into him by this team versus when he was at Dayton. But, I mean, he... He was all over the place. He would, you know, get in passing lanes sometimes. Uh, he showed a little bit of, I, I mean, I wouldn't call it rim protection per se, but the ability to get a block from time to time, you know, if if he helped over at the right moment, uh, you know, he, he was able to use his verticality to get up and, and disrupt people's shots around the hoop. Um, and, you know, he was pretty good on the perimeter too. There was, there was a couple of possessions towards the end of the season when he was really getting playing time where, he stymied some really good perimeter players on the outside and, you know, bottled them up. And I was like, wow, I, I thought this was going to be the stuff that, you know, he was just going to get torched like on every switch. And he played them admirably well for someone who had the, the defensive rep or lack thereof that he did coming out of college. So um, yeah, I, I think that he surprised on defense. He definitely, and I mean, it was part schematic and part just him, looking really uncomfortable for most of the year, but I would say that he underwhelmed on offense. He was showing flashes towards the end of the year. All in all though, like I, I would put his ceiling at like a really solid role player, at least right now. I do think that, I mean, there's, there's those draft age concerns too, where he's like, he was like one of the oldest rookies ever uh, coming out of the draft, you know, or like at least in the modern era, you know, of where we see so many guys that are like 18, 19, 20 years old come out. Um, he was he was one of the oldest picks, you know, in that time frame. And so I don't know how much upside there is. I will say he was a late bloomer. Like, I don't know if you're familiar. Like, I, I get the yeah. feeling that you did a lot of scouting like we did last year because the Cavs were heavily linked to him prior to the draft. Um, you know, he is he is a guy that bloomed late in high school and had his growth spurt late. And then that's what led him to not getting a, a good D1 offer right away where he went the the junior college route eventually ended up at Dayton. So like his development curve is a little weird in that sense where he's because he's still kind of growing into his body and, and still growing into himself from a basketball perspective that I don't think he's your typical, you know, going to be 24 year old second year player. But I, I do also worry that there's just not a ton of like a huge, huge ceiling, you know, for him, a, a huge ceiling spike, you know, on the horizon and, and that he'll probably, uh, end up, you know, just being like a good role player that can defend, hit the three a little bit and work out of the pick and roll. But I, I don't know necessarily that he would ever turn into like a star caliber player. Yeah. And possibly it's too, too soon to say if he could become a viable starter long-term, but like, I wouldn't be surprised if he was ultimately like a 20 minute per game bench piece either. No, that absolutely, that absolutely makes sense to me. And I think you and I have the same vision for Obi and, um, yeah, I became acquainted with him once the Cavs are kind of interested or expressing interest at least for him at five. And as we know how it went down, they their guy all along was really Isaac Okoro, but it was more due diligence and Cavs fans were freaking out just because of things like that. But I guess before we wrap up, because we've been we've been recording for almost an hour now and um, I, I can hear I can hear Nick Angstat coming in like a force telling me that these need to be a half hour. But um 
how would how do you feel about his fit in Cleveland? Like like I said, I, I personally believe Kevin Love won't be here next season, but in my envisioned role on him, if they take oh, Evan Mobley, the third overall pick, would you think Obi would fit really well as a rotational four or five off the bench for Cleveland? Then maybe in time you could start him as your four and you put Evan Mobley at the five. If they moved on from Jared Allen. Like that's how I kind of envision it. Yeah. He'll be an older sophomore player, like you said, but him trying his hardest on defense and him showing a little bit of what he does have offensively, like in terms of just his springiness and his ability to pass in the short roll and things like that. Like those are all appealing things and kind of more or less things Cleveland needs in terms of just depth. Um, do you, do you like the fit with Obi or do you think he'd be better off elsewhere? I like him a lot better with Mobley than I do with Allen. Um, I think you might run into some of the same problems with Allen that you did with him with um, Mitchell Robinson and Nerlens Noel this year on the Knicks, which is like, and, and honestly, the guy that he started to kind of thrive with was Taj Gibson who could step outside a little bit like Taj. Uh, he's not a huge three point threat, but if he's in the corner, you can't just leave him wide open because he does make open corner threes if you let him take it. Um, so, you know, he needs that spacing, I think, because with Mitch and Nerlens, like they have no game outside of, seven feet, you know, so they need the ball close to the hoop. So I, I think that Obi's not good enough yet to not strong enough in particular to really like drive into two interior defenders, you know, his own man in the center potentially and absorb some contact, draw a foul, make a shot, whatever. I think that he needs that open lane. And so if you can offer it, which Mobley should be able to offer him because Mobley is a credible threat from pretty much everywhere. Um, I think that would be a better fit, you know, and defensively, they, I think they could actually be pretty fun together. Uh, Cause like I said, you know, Obi's not, I, I don't think he's ever going to be a guy that you would call a stalwart or anything, but he's not terrible on defense, um, which was what we all thought was going to be the case. He sticks to his man. He's not going to be a liability. I don't think, I think he'll be, you know, probably like a, like a leave league average defender yeah. um, and Mobley profiles to potentially be like, this, you know, monster two-way, you know, offensively talented and and also, you know, defensively talented, like superstar type if he reaches his peak. So, you know, if you compare those two together as your front court, I think you'd be sitting pretty as far as defense is concerned and potentially offense too. If they can both stretch the floor, like if Obi gets his three-point shot to like 35% on, you know, three, four attempts per game, something like that, I, I think that would be a pretty solid fit. Um Allen, you know, like I said, and, you know, you, you'd even said, like, maybe they move on from out at a certain point. You know, I, I it could work with him. Um, mm-hmm. I just think I think ideally you want to start putting Obi in situations where he can rim run because he's good at that. He's good at catching lobs. He's good at, you know, running to the hoop. And he should hopefully get a little stronger to where he can sort of fend his defender off long enough to, you know, get up and catch a lob or something or finish through contact if the situation presents itself. And if you can get to that point, like you want to take advantage of that. If you have a Jared Allen out there, that's basically his role too. Just like it was with Mitchell Robinson. And in theory, like it was with Nerlens Noel, though Nerlens never really, uh, never really uh, was the type of guy to be able to catch lobs because mm-hmm. he has stone hands. But um, in theory, that's his role too. And so he was clogging the pain as well, you know, trying to get offensive rebounds or whatever and, and catch balls close to the hoop and all that. So I, I think you want to you want to get some spacing around, and then Obi can almost operate as your rim running center, quote unquote, in certain sets. You just need someone good enough at the five to you know keep the defense honest and not let them pack the paint against him. So, yeah, I think. Uh, long story short, I think him and Mobley would be a solid fit, and maybe maybe the Cavs then in this scenario, I mean, find some team that's center desperate and sign and trade Jared Allen in exchange for like a wing or guard player to sort of replace Sexton. And then, you know, maybe you're cooking with gas with a new player in there at that guard position. And then sort of your front court of the future uh, mm-hmm. with the, the local college kid, at least in Obi Toppin. it would be kind of cool for Obi, I guess, in a way to go from, well, it would suck to get traded. I'm sure it always hurts oh, in yeah. the NBA, but it was very played up that he's like, he's a New York kid. He's from New York and he's playing for the Knicks. And then, but he went to college in Ohio, obviously. So if he gets traded to the Cavs, it'd be like his same journey from his life, just reflecting itself onto his pro career again. 
Yeah, it would be interesting for sure. And I think um, it, that caught in the craw of a lot of Cavs fans at first. They said, like, oh, he's a local product, quote, unquote. And it was like, he's from New York. But, yeah, like you said, he uh, he played at Dayton. I think there's a connection there. I think there's some interest as well. Um, I know a lot of more casual fans would be excited to have Obi Toppin in the wine and gold, to say the least. But um, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Uh, I, I think there is a there's a lot of – a lot of, lot of, lot of fire to this smoke here, and it's just going to be interesting to see what happens. But I think we should put a pin in this talk for now. We'll, we might have to reconnect if Colin is traded to New York and really break things down, especially when we have a clearer vision of what the trade package is. But I really, I really appreciate your time, man. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and thank you for coming on and giving such a good scouting report of Sexton and the the great details on the potential trade for uh, for our listeners. Do you want to let everybody know where to find you and and locked on Cavs and everything? Well, yeah, I am. My name is Evan Damara. Like we talked about at the po- top, you can find me on Twitter at am not Evan. I host locked on Cavs five days a week. I also help run the, with my co-host, Chris Manning. I also run the show at fear the sword for SB nation with him there as well. Um, I have some biggish news coming soon, hopefully for my, in regards to my Cavs coverage that I'm excited to share about. So yeah, just come check us out. Uh, we're, we're usually pretty chill. Um, most of our fans dislike our opinions, but that's the beauty of sports fandom is um, you're, you're allowed to disagree with things. And I always have the mentality that it's boring that if everyone paints with the same brush and the same colored paint, why not add a little couple other shades to mix things up? Yeah, I'm totally with that too. And for anyone listening from Locked on Cavs, uh, you can find us at Locked on Knicks. You can find us on any of your favorite streaming services. I'm uh, at the Alex Wolf on Twitter. Gavin had to dip a little early because he had a, a bus to catch, uh, but he's at Gavin Shaw on Twitter. And uh, you can check all of our stuff out there. And if you want more Knicks perspectives, I run a site called The Strickland, which is at the strict.land if you want to check that out as well. Um, but Evan, this is great, man. Uh, yeah, yeah I, if there is a trade, we'll certainly be talking again. But for now, uh, probably best to wrap up before we get yelled at by the locked on bosses for going yeah. too long. So, <laughs> uh, so it was good talking to you, man. And hopefully yeah. we'll connect again soon. Absolutely. Talk to you soon.